0: Welcome to PrismaCast, the podcast of Prisma, Center for Jewish Day Schools. My name is Rachel Dratch, Associate Director of Educational Innovation here at Prisma, and this podcast is part of an amazing series called Startup Day School, envisioned and produced by Mr. Josh Gold, who is not only the middle school principal at the Hafter School in Lawrence, New York, but is also pursuing a doctorate at Yeshiva University. Without further ado, here's Josh with Startup Day School.
1: Welcome back to the Startup Day School. My name is Joshua Gold. So good to be back with you. My guest today, very, very special guest. We're very, very privileged to have her, Dr. Eliana Lipsky. Uh, Dr. Lipsky is the middle school principal for the Charles E. Smith Jewish Day School, the largest pluralistic Jewish day school in North America. We're so happy to have you with us, Eliana. Uh, Thank you for being here.
2: Thank you for having me. It's a privilege.
1: So we've heard amazing things about so many of the things that you're doing in your school and in your practice as principal of the middle school. Obviously, uh, during COVID, uh, so many you know challenges and opportunities that uh, that are present in even a typical situation uh, in school are heightened, confounded. How have you been able to uh, maintain a sense of continuing with your mission and progressive practices and things like that in the face of some of these new challenges? It's
2: a good question. So there. I have to say there are a few practices that we've actually put into place before COVID even hit that are good practices that I think have become critical at this time. So the first is practicing collaborative problem solving, which is something that really attends to the social emotional well being of our students and our faculty and our parents. And for anyone who's not familiar with it, collaborative problem solving is a concept that was created by Dr. Ross Green and Dr. Stuart Ablon many years ago and is now something that you can actually train in and become a practitioner or a certified practitioner of. And the whole concept is that you lead with empathy. So oftentimes a traditional uh, focus on discipline or when a student isn't meeting expectations is kind of like slapping the student with this, you have to do this because I said so. Um, Or there are all these consequences. And usually the consequences don't really match the situation, even if we call them logical consequences. So collaborative problem solving is all about um, Finding out like what's actually the concern for a student and saying, hey, um, you know, we noticed that this thing keeps happening for you. Can you tell us what's going on and actually just taking a step back and listening. And if there's anything we need to do during COVID, it's actually taking a step back and listening, and giving our students the opportunity to speak and share what's going on for them. And then we find out that this thing that looks like it's you know intentional and it's you know terrible is actually just I'm having a hard time with my Wi-Fi, or I'm having a hard time with um, managing my home life right now because I'm the older sibling of five different kids and I I'm having a really like I'm really struggling can you help me and then it gives us the chance to show that we're listening by reflective uh, reflecting what they've said and um, and then coming up with okay well here's the expectation you know and here's your concern is there a way that we can actually address this together and then by giving the student the first stab at it We show that we trust them to be able to have agency in this approach and that they're a partner in this process as opposed to just someone who we're, you know, forcing into a particular way way of being. Yeah. Um, yeah. So So, that's critical.
1: So important in middle school too, the sort of, uh, shift of role for for the student as now being in the driver's seat of the planning process much more than they were maybe even in elementary school, right? That we want the student to really internalize that they are uh, the most important stakeholder at the table when it comes to problem solving and, and certainly taking ownership for the, you know, for the, the solution-oriented conversation that we want to have. Let me ask you uh, the foundation of whatever these practices are whether it's Ross Green's practices um, you know whether it's uh, whether whether it's TCIS, any of this stuff the foundation always comes back to relationship building. how have you been able to sort of um, instill in your team uh, you know that, that that's sort of the bedrock of any of these practices
2: That's so awesome that you asked that so one of the things that we've really pushed here in the middle school for the last several years is that we are teaching human beings and that when a human being enters the classroom, we want to engage with that person first. Yes, we might have content specialists and yes, we might have all of these skills that we're trying to get to and all of these other um, accomplishments or achievements. But at the end of the day, if we don't recognize the person in front of us first, we're never going to get there. And so the beauty of it is that the collaborative problem-solving um protocol actually forces us to recognize the person in front of us and by by creating that entire first step that's dedicated to empathy and reflective listening
1: yeah, I think that's such an important mindset for our teachers to have and it really, not only does it really humanize uh, the whole process, um, but also very importantly, it speaks to another paradigm shift that uh, Ross Green writes about, which is that when a student is having issues like this, it's often the inclination of the, the person in the room, the teacher, to to have a, have a sort of like this student is giving me a hard time feel for it. But the important paradigmatic shift, the reframe that Ross Green talks about is, it's not that this student is giving me a hard time, it's that this student is having a hard time. And that's such, a, such an important uh, new kind of um, uh, way of looking at things that's so important for teachers. So that being said, how have you been able to be strategic about cultivating this new kind of culture change within your school? How have you gone about that?
2: So it's been interesting. It's been a several year process. Nothing changes overnight as we know. And um, I think the first step was actually getting a small group of, uh, of faculty and staff to learn about the entire protocol we started with our counselors and some of our lead teachers and our administrators just so that they could have a sense of what it was and then we actually flipped how we ran discipline protocol from a, a very strict discipline you know you did this therefore x y and z um in a very uh, authoritarian way to instead of like when someone needs a break in a classroom, we might send them to what we call is the Moadone, which is just like the school, middle school space where the counselors and the assistant principal and I hang out. Um, and we have them fill out something called an intention sheet, not a reflection sheet, because the reflection is all about what they did wrong, as opposed to an intention form, which actually starts with, hey, I noticed you're filling me out, what's up, which is just like a you tell me what's going on from your perspective and then that initiates the conversation with the counselor who follows up with the student and then again initiates with the teacher how to create that conversation then we've started to weave this into every single parent um, coffee that we have I put it in as many newsletters as I can Uh, and I've also sat with parents individually and said, I am so happy to talk to you about collaborative problem solving. Let's have a conversation. And I love it when parents call me and say, okay, I really do want a conversation with you. And we'll talk through how they might manage a situation that's hard for them at home. And then they they see how it it flows. And then the other big thing is I'm very honest with the students. And when they come in, if I'm ever running a, a protocol, because I have the title of principal, we will always bring in a counselor. If for some reason I have to be part of that conversation because that can get a little nerve wracking for them. And I will sit with the protocol on the table and I'll say, look, this isn't made up, it's not crazy. There's actually something here that makes sure that we're listening to your voice because it's so important to us that you're part of this conversation.
1: Do you find it easier for teachers to be uh, more low inference with their observations when they have that kind of a protocol, meaning, Oftentimes, teachers, I think can run into difficulty with regard to behavioral interventions and partnering with parents when they 're not able to be as specific or even clinical about what they 're seeing. It can be like this vague subjective interpretation of you know this student is whatever whatever pejorative they're going to use right as opposed to i'm noticing that johnny's having um it, it often maybe takes him a little bit longer to pack up his things when we're transitioning or I'm noticing uh, you know in the hallway that's really when we're seeing our, whatever it is, but it allows us to be a bit more specific mm-hmm. and targeted in what our, our you know our observations are and until we're at that point, we're never going to be as effective in remedying the situation. Um, so so are you finding your teachers are able to sort of buy into that? you know, stop trying to interpret everything. Rather, it's, it's a noticing, it's a conversation starter. Um,
2: I think that by practicing collaborative problem solving, it forces the conversation about observations versus assumptions and what is objective versus subjective. So, you know, the whole, um, the whole motto of collaborative problem solving is kids do well if they can. So if you start from that premise, then you automatically have to assume that something is off not that it's intentionally off, but that there's something going on for the child or for a colleague or for a parent, right? This applies. I've used it when I speak with parents. I've used it when I speak with teachers. Um, I use it at home with my own children. That's where I practice. So, you know, there's there's this entire piece where you can't start the conversation if you haven't made the observation and the observation has to be so specific because if it's not specific, you're never going to get anywhere in the conversation. So some of the things we did as part of our rollout was to actually have professional development around um, what is it in, how do we change the language we're using? You know, I I don't love um, the concept of behavior management, I think it sounds like we are managing um, something other than people. Like it's just, it's not something that makes sense to me because you don't manage behavior. You actually respond to it and try to find a way for students to, or individuals to learn more positive and more healthy coping mechanisms so that their behavior is more appropriate, right? And usually what we're seeing when uh, students aren't following or complying or, you know, whatever it is, it's because they have some kind of maladaptive, right? If there's a behavioral component, there's a maladaptive strategy. They're doing something that they've learned to do, but it wasn't necessarily the healthiest or most, excuse me, positive way to do that. So um, what we've done in our PD is actually run through very specifically observations versus assumptions as a team and say, hey, you know, is this an observation or is it an assumption? How would you drill down so you can get to your I notice statement? And if you're just saying frequently versus consistently versus always, is that actually an observation? Or are you gonna start counting? And is it on a specific day or a time of day? Because all of that information is going to change the way we see patterns. And pattern finding is the most important thing here because once we find patterns that are Um, supported by, I would say, quantitative data, not qualitative data, then we can begin a real conversation and figuring out what scaffolds we need to put into place or just have an honest conversation with a child to say, hey, you know, we got to change something here.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and if nothing else, often it gives uh, the student real insight into when these things are happening and and the locations and sort of the setting conditions and antecedents that are occurring. Uh, That's real powerful information for the student to have, too. Um, it's real great opportunity for interdisciplinary uh, conversations too that can lead themselves in a variety of ways. And might, you might have, uh, you know, this this student is, um, you know, having the same issue maybe in a science class and, and a Gemara class, or maybe maybe having the issue in every class except for Humash and whatever. And that conversation is so powerful if we can you know, create a space for teachers. And during COVID, that space might be virtual. Uh, But if we can have these spaces where teachers are consistently coming together to share quantitative low inference observations and data about students, um, sky's the limit, right? Are you having things, uh, practices like that, structures like that in your school?
2: Yes, yeah, so we have grade level meetings twice a week every week and during those meetings. They're actually set up so that all of our faculty meet at the same time for a particular grade level, not by department or discipline. And the notes are even set up so that it starts with observations and then next steps and we work really hard to keep each other honest about our observations and we'll see you know you exactly what you said happens right so Johnny. To go back to our, our friend Johnny, he's you know um, performing really strongly in math and consistently turning in his homework and then all of a sudden the Hebrew teacher speaks up and says, hmm, that's not happening in my class. He's never turning in his homework. And we start to see, okay, what time of day are these things happening? Is it just one class? Is it more than one class? And that Those are great conversations that we're, ha- we're having. Yeah
1: totally totally and it's also it's also modeling the kind of behavior or, or practice that you want students to be aspiring to as well um you know e- whether whether students see it or not they you know they, they they know what's going on in the building and when when they know that teachers are authentically collaborating with each other there's a real co- uh, like cultural trickle down effect that occurs when everybody in the building sees that everyone is here to be collaborative and work together and it's not like oh you do this you're siloed to be over there no no we're all working together in certain Service of the growth of, of all of us this is a, a, a genuinely and authentically a professional learning community and in that way we're all learners uh, and that really trickles down to students I know something oh sorry go ahead yeah
2: I was gonna say the coolest thing that started happening last year is that sometimes a student will ask for a collaborative problem-solving conversation with a teacher if for whatever reason the relationship feels um, less than great
1: uh-huh. and
2: and that's been very cool to witness because then the student can open the conversation with the teacher or the teacher can open the conversation with the student and just say, Hey, I know that you want me here, share what's going on for you. And it begins a really great, it it just fosters a great relationship.
1: And I always say to parents that those, those sorts of soft skills, the, the agency, the ownership. Uh, by students, that is the most important uh, set of skills that they're gonna leave middle school with if we can get them to to really cultivate them. The hard skills they need they need, they need to be able to read and write and, and be on grade level format, all those things are extremely important. But if they don't have a sense of agency, if they don't have the ability to, to you know have the sort of mindset where they're able to identify areas that they wanna kind of develop proficiency in or remediate or whatever, and go up and collaborate with other people, whether it's peers or, or adults in the building, um, they're not gonna be positioned to be as successful as they could be. Um, so it's so important that and so good to hear that, uh, that your school is doing that kind of work. Uh, we Here at Half Middle School, we, we have the same sort of mindset. And I know something that we were talking about earlier was that it's not just about. Um, it's obviously not just about being a student and being being here in middle school, but for life, we are positioning students to hopefully feel uh, and uh, as if they are leaders, right? In in every capacity that uh, that, that could be true in, whether that's uh, academically, uh, socially, spiritually, whatever it is, we want students to feel uh, that they are leaders, and we want to teach into what that means in terms of, us, uh, you know, having integrity and um, and uh, appreciating the your voice and your perspective and things like that. Have you been doing any intention work when it comes to to that, going beyond sort of just the collaborative, but also focusing on developing these leaders.
2: Yes. Uh, So student advocacy is actually a very much a part of what we work on with students individually, as well as in our program. So in eighth grade, our focus is very much on leadership. And this year, COVID has actually presented a great positive for us, which is we were able to create a once a week course on our long Friday schedule um, where students are the eighth grade actually gets to learn from Jewish leaders around the world. Mm. And the the whole concept in eighth grade is how do I knowing my identity for how much an adolescent can know their identity and, you know, knowing my community and what it means to be part of these different things while maintaining my individuality. How do I actually work towards social justice Mm -hmm. and become a leader and a force for that purpose? So the whole curriculum is focused on this. And this year they're specifically learning about what does it mean to be a Jewish leader? Mm
1: -hmm. And what does
2: it mean that a Jewish leader can actually be at any part of the system? It doesn't have to be a rabbi or a principal or a head of school or, you know, someone who's in a high level administrator position, but rather the whole concept that we're trying to share is that Jewish leaders are everywhere and they themselves are Jewish leaders by the things that they're doing in our school to help us be better, to help themselves be better. And they've learned from um, people in Jakarta, VBYO. Uh, the rack. I feel like I'm telling you things that are very specific to Maryland, but, and, and a few other things, but they really get a very broad perspective on what does it mean to be a leader in the Jewish community.
1: Yeah, and you're reminding me, so, um, you know, one of the things we speak to kids about a lot here at, at, at my school is, uh, this is a, a great Rabbi Sacks, Zechr uh, Tzadik uh, Libracha, idea of the difference between leadership and authority that we often mistake the two, that thinking that someone's in a position of authority means that they, he or she is a leader, Um, but certainly not. And there are obviously many examples of someone who's in a, you know, historically whatever, uh, people who have been in positions of authority who have not led. And conversely, so many examples of people who did not have authority, but really acted as leaders. And so one of the things that we do at our school is, um, we call it the, store, uh, um, uh, the power of story, right? It's this project where it's based on this research out of Emory University from like 10, 15 years ago, where they identified a, a strong uh, uh, correlation between um, how much adolescents knew about their family history and how greedy and resilient they are. And the more they knew about their family history, where they came from, things like this, the grittier and more resilient they were. And so, so we we did a lot of you know work on that and identifying once we learn leadership capacities, identifying those traits in ancestors within our family, very very powerful thing to do. Um, but the other thing, uh, the other thing was that was so interesting with the study was they found that even within that subset of people who knew a lot about their family history, there was even uh, higher levels of resilience or, or lower depending on the following. So if you saw your family history as having what they called an ascending order of of growth, right? Meaning like, you know, in the old country, we didn't have anything, we were really poor. And then we moved here, we immigrated to America. And then, you know, great grandpa opened a mill or whatever, and now we're we're a success story. That's an ascending story and how an adolescent perceives their history. That's like, okay. Descending, also, also like not great, but, but whatever, at least you know the history is same thing. We used to have it all, we used to be big, and then after the war, we, can't, we, we, haven't, you know, we don't have anything. So that's descending, right? But the most healthy or the healthiest perspective on family history and the grittiest kids understood their family history with a perspective of oscillation right is an oscillating story there were times we were up there were times we were down but we stayed true to our you know to our process and our integrity those often were the most gritty and the most resilient kids and so um i just love this conversation and it's and for me if we're positioning kids to, to own to understand these stories and feel a sense of ownership over that they are now writing the next chapter of that story that's ideal
2: totally and that's part of the coolest thing in this um Course at the beginning of the year for us was that we actually started with Ta'ani, I think and the, you know, like what are the characteristics of a leader and the students had to decide like, well, what do we believe in and do we agree with what the Gemara said and then what are the things that we actually think a leader needs and then where do we see that in our leadership and does that change depending on the time and the, the students were really, really Quite wise about it. You know, they were saying, well, it really depends on what's happening. It depends on who the leader is and what they're leading for. And they were comparing like David to Moshe and to, you know, it was actually really neat. You know, do you need a different kind of leader for a different situation? Which I think as Jewish day school leaders, we understand that that's probably very true (laughs) um, often. And then the other thing that this class does in eighth grade is our eighth grade civil rights focus and they think about leadership and they study so many different components of what it means to to fight for civil rights and what does it mean that the civil rights movement happened but it's still happening Mm -hmm. and then when COVID is not happening something that we initiated my second year i think possibly my first year, I can't remember at this point. Uh, We started going to the South, which is a common thing to do to go to the South and kind of go on your own civil rights movement. But because we grew it ourselves and developed the programming ourselves, we were able to weave in every moment into our curriculum. And so the lead up was both an exploration of what does it mean to um, engage as leaders at our age, at at the age of adolescence, you know, 13, 14 years old, how do we learn from others in these different places and then how do we bring back what we're doing there or learning there and bring it back to what we're doing in our community. And we have seen our students become the best leaders in our community and set up conferences with other youth around the country just to engage and push these conversations further, which is amazing. Um, so that that's something that I think we can be very proud of for
1: our. That's so cool, and I imagine that uh, that it was well received when they reached out because uh, I think that students in general are thirsty for this sort of work, and I think that they feel the authenticity of it, and they're drawn to it. So. Uh, Dr. Lucy, I cannot thank you enough for being on the podcast here with us. Everyone uh, who is listening, thank you so much for being with us. We can't wait to be with you again soon uh, here on the Startup Day School. Thanks so much. Have a great day.
0: That was an amazing podcast. Thank you, Josh. For contact info and links from today's episode, check us out at prisma.org. Follow us on social media at prismacjds, subscribe to this podcast wherever podcasts are found. And check out the Prisma Knowledge Center, our online place to find resources, templates, articles, reports, and research on all things day school for day school leaders.